Hey everybody, before we get to this amazing conversation with Tish Jennings, I wanted to take a moment and celebrate that this is the 100th episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. Wow, it's come a long way since the show started in the summer of 2020. Uh, And so here from the top, I want to share a little gratitude. Uh, First, for our collective list of special guests who have so graciously given of their time to share their learning and expertise with so many of us through this platform. Secondly, I want to thank our Good Life EDU audience, you, for being a faithful listener, a lifelong learner, and an educator who's looking to play a part in moving education forward. All of our efforts with this show have been to help keep us informed, aware, uh, and connected because there are so many people out there in Nebraska, across the U.S., and around the world who are passionate about the same things that we all are, learning and having a positive impact on others, especially kids. So thank you for all you do and for being a part of this community. One last thing before we get to today's episode, it would mean a lot if you would take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Your support helps us to be able to invite others into these conversations, and a written review especially would be incredible. So if you've enjoyed the first 100 episodes of the Good Life EDU podcast, help us keep going and growing in the next 100 by supporting us with a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it. And now to today's conversation with the author of Mindfulness for Teachers, Simple Skills for Peace and Productivity in the Classroom, the University of Virginia's own Tish Jennings. Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And recently I was reading an Ed Week article uh, that was entitled Superficial Self-Care, Stressed Out Teachers Say No Thanks. And for folks that listen on a regular basis, you know that this has been an interest that I've had and I know is shared by a number of educators across our country uh, with regards to how do we help? How do we help with teacher retention? How do we help to address teacher burnout? And I'm really grateful to Dr. Tish Jennings, who is a professor of education at the University of Virginia, uh, for being willing to join us today on the pod uh, for a conversation on that very topic. And so, Tish, for those that don't know you, can you give us a little bit of your background in education? Sure. Yeah. Andrew, thank you for inviting me to join you here today. I really appreciate it. I was a teacher myself for 22 years, elementary, early childhood. But before I became a teacher, I was actually practicing mindfulness. So I think for me, you know, and I'm going to talk more about this later, but I I think coming to teaching with that background made teaching, I wouldn't say easier, but it gave me some insight into my students and my own well-being that I think was helpful. But this is a long time ago. (laughs) This is like late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, it was not the main thing people were doing. But I was also working as an instructor in a teacher preparation program, supervising student teachers. And I was also uh, instruct teaching classroom management to the same student teachers that I was supervising. So I got to watch my students try to deploy skills that I'd been teaching them in class to see, you know, how they were doing and to guide them and, and mentor them and support them. And what I started noticing over and over and over again is that sometimes when we as educators are stressed out, we misperceive situations and we overreact 
to our students. We take things personally. We don't understand the context of why they're behaving the way they're behaving. And, and sometimes we, yeah, we overreact. We think what they're doing is personally, like he's doing that to drive me crazy. That kind of mindset, you know, <laughs> that's how it can, it can feel that way. And, but when you watch somebody else doing that, it becomes really clear that they're misperceiving what's really going on. And they're not really seeing where this kid is coming from. And in the process of reacting that way, they're actually creating a conflict that they are blaming on the student. So this was really weird, you know, to watch a teacher unintentionally create a conflict with a student by sort of projecting on them a misperception of what they were doing, and then watching that student either react back defensively or to shut down, which is another way that kids can respond to that. Um, but it made me realize like, you can't manage classrooms when you're this stressed out. But I didn't understand why, you know, it didn't, it, I didn't know enough about stress or how stress affects people's behavior. So I went back and got my doctorate in human development and I focused on stress, like understanding stress with the idea that I would bring it back into answering this question so that I could understand it better. Uh, and I found out at the time, nobody had done this before. I was like the first teacher who had gone back to school to study stress because there are a lot of people studying stress, but they don't know the teaching context. And our context is really unique. We, we are in a very unusual work context, <laughs> you know? And so I think um, the combination of those experiences led me to some insight about how we can understand this tendency to be reactive, this tendency to be stressed out, how it impacts our teaching and how to deal with it better, to, to build the capacity to overcome that habitual tendency that we can get into. And I can explain why that happens, why we get into that state if you want. Yeah, yeah. Tish, that's actually where I was going to go. When you talk about some of the characteristics of our profession and specifically the job of a teacher being unique, maybe elaborate on that a little bit. And that would certainly ground us in our why, right? And I sure. think we all know, but there's, you've researched. <laughs> yes. Well, there are not very many professions where you can't use the bathroom when you need to, which is one. I mean, that's just one. You know, you're you're virtually captive in your classroom during a certain period of time. And just being sort of stuck in a room where you can't leave when you need to is a stressor in, in any context. Then to be faced with 20, 30 more young people who all have their little lives and their little minds and their little emotions. And then also to be taught, I mean, most of us were taught that we're supposed to be in control of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we are not in control of them. So, you know, so we're, we're it's a setup for stress. And on top of that, we're supposed to be managing the behaviors of all these little people and getting them to pay attention to us. And we're supposed to keep in our mind a certain content that we're supposed to be conveying to these people <laughs> while right. all this is going on. Yeah. Yes. That, that we also feel a certain sense of responsibility for them to retain. on top Absolutely, of Absolutely. Right? Cause they yeah. going to take a test and then that's going to reflect on us. Right. And yeah. Yeah, it's a setup for stress. If you wanted to put a person in a stressful environment, that's it. 
you know, there's a guy named Lee Shulman who used to study, he's, I think he's retired now, but he studied professional development and he, he focused on medicine, education, and some other field, which I don't remember. But one time he said, the only thing in medicine that's as challenging as being a classroom teacher is emergency room work. <laughs> wow. And to exacerbate those stresses or to maybe add to them, we don't need to spend a lot of time going through all the things that have been added in the last two years. Uh, Wait, yeah. Those classroom yeah. stressors and responsibilities. Yeah. And I think just the increase in communication, whether it be through email, you know, because I, I do have colleagues at the service agency level who have not taught for a, a time. And their question that they asked me sometimes, because I was in the classroom as recently as two years ago, is what has led to this beyond just some of those requirements? And and I do think that there are just a lot, uh, the expectation to have your materials online, the expectation that you're emailing back in a timely fashion, and, and that there's just a lot of uh, communication responsibilities that maybe weren't there when my dad was teaching, for example. Well, also, many more of our students are coming to us with trauma exposure. I mean, there there was a lot, I'm not saying there never was a lot of trauma exposure in students in the past, but the number of students that are coming to us, are, I mean, the, the risk of trauma has really increased as the demands on families, especially in the United States, you know, families do not have a lot of support these days. Both parents are working. Uh, there's not a lot of time. If, if they're under-resourced, one little thing can tip the scales in their home and the, the kids are suffering and the families are suffering. And you see that in classrooms and we're not prepared to understand what's going on with them and to respond to them in ways that are effective. We're not, that's not part of our training, um, but we're being asked to do that as well. And then on top of it, I think COVID accentuated the structural challenges that we're trying to work in. And I can talk a little bit about that too. But when when you're the structure you're working in is not resilient, it doesn't accommodate the diversity of needs. Everybody is feeling some uh, constraint and some challenge, and uh, so I think COVID just made that really crystal clear that our school systems are antiquated and need some major overhauls. Well, and before we started recording today, that was a point of conversation that we had hoped to get to was to talk about some of those structural pieces because uh, those that listen to the pod on a regular basis, Brent Madden uh, joined us to talk about co-teaching plus and to start to think about maybe it's a, as he called it, a workforce design problem that uh, I would love to get your thoughts on what it might look like to alter or modify that structural piece uh, for the betterment of our teacher wellness. Well, I love the idea of co-teaching. I mean, if you think about that quote from Shulman about, you know, emergency room and the classroom teaching, emergency room physicians get how long, how long is their internship last? I don't know, a long time, right? They're not thrown into the emergency room right away without some working directly alongside another doctor and learning from them. So how is it that we expect an educator who has less training in preparation than a doctor does to be thrown into a classroom without any of this, without support of another adult to be there to, to help direct you. So I think having a model, and I'm, I'm not familiar with that model, but it seems to me that if you had an experienced mentor teacher and a newer teacher and you were working together, um, it would be a win-win and the classroom wouldn't feel so confining 
Because if you needed to leave the room, you know you have a person there that can help. And even like another example where that could be really helpful is, you know, you always have those moments where there's certain students that just get at you, you know, it's just like their behavior, you have a hard time with it. It just gets on your nerves, right? Well, if there's a student like that in your class, your partner can handle them instead of you. So when you find yourself getting irritated, you can step away and say, oh, your turn. <laughs> you know, will you talk to him or her or whatever? That way there's more flexibility. I think that is the problem, the structure. So just going back a little bit, if you look at the history of the public education system in America, it evolved during the Industrial Revolution. And what was so revolutionary about the industrial revolution was scaling, you know, making things at scale, like mass producing automobiles, like big deal, right? So I think there was this mindset that was kind of, I mean, at the time, I guess it made sense, but now it looks very backwards thinking that you could scale anything that way, no matter what. And at the time, we didn't really know that much about learning science. We didn't know that much about developmental psychology. You know, we really didn't. And all we knew was this sort of rote way of teaching that was pretty old fashioned and really was only aiming for getting the masses to be at about fourth grade level. Yeah, you got to be able to read, write, do arithmetic and, you know, so you could vote, right, basically. <laughs> and, you know, if you wanted to go on beyond that, fine. But, you know, that's all we need. So, and also the student population was very homogeneous at the time. There wasn't a lot of diversity among kids. And so they thought, okay, well, we can create a system that follows a linear form that's uh, siloed by age. You know, we'll break them down. We'll put them in these groups with age. We'll take the content and silo it and separate it out like language arts, you know, mathematics, anything else will separate all of that. And we'll put, there'll be the inputs into this factory that will produce learned, you know, educated citizens, right? Um, and there'll be standards, everything will be standardized and everybody has to meet these standards. The problem with that is what we now know about learning and development, there's way more diversity in that process than this system can account for way more diversity. Now, when I say diversity, I mean all kinds of diversity. Just think about the average fourth grader. Some fourth graders are like second graders. Some fourth graders are like sixth graders, right? And if you think about yeah, that's just age diversity, like how, and, and maturation diversity. Then you've got neurodiversity. You know, you've got kids that are very um, good at remembering things, but they're socially and emotionally really challenged, right? or vice versa. There's so much diversity in our the way we are as human beings. And our school system tries to put everybody in this very narrow box. And that makes it hard on us as educators because our kids don't fit in those boxes. But the system is telling us we're supposed to make them fit into those boxes. And sometimes that can lead to something I call moral distress. Because if I know that my student has something valuable here, but it doesn't fit into the box, and I have to pathologize that kid, I have to identify him or her or exclude him or her in some way or grade him or her badly because of something, then that, that may not feel right to me. But I have to do it because the system, such as it is, is forcing me to do that. So these are the kinds of, those are just some of the challenges as educators we have to deal with as we try to navigate this very old system. 
that wasn't developed to support our current understanding of how kids learn and develop. Wow, I'd never considered that moral stress piece, an ethical dilemma, right? Between what you're being asked to do and what you feel like is in the best interest of that individual student or group of students, that is stressful. It's I, incredibly I, stressful and demoralizing. Really, it's it's very hard. It's I think, especially during COVID, a lot of teachers were dealing with that um, because they were trying to do all this remotely. And then, you know, the, the expectations were not necessarily changing enough. And, you know, they were b- sort of being made to do things that they just couldn't do, that, they, they, you know, just didn't feel right to do. Uh, and at the same time, I think students, uh, many of them just disengaged. I think students are now starting to realize that this system isn't working for them either. In many cases, students are not, their needs are not being met in many, many ways by this system. Then what what would be our next practical step? <laughs> I mean, it's twofold, right? It first would be to change the system, but when and where that's not possible, how should we proceed? Ah, uh, this is a Big question, Andrew. <laughs> you have got all the answers, Tish. Why no, I, I don't, but I've been thinking <laughs> about simple, it a lot. Sure. I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, my recent book, Teacher Burnout Turnaround, I, I wrote about it a lot. So first of all, human systems are created by human beings. I know sometimes when we're in the thick of it, it feels like we're living in this monolithic structure that we have no control over. But in reality, they're just made up of human beings and we can change them, but we need to shift our mindsets a little bit. First of all, I think that, well, just built into the uh, industrial system was a kind of tendency to disempower teachers. Teachers were seen in this system as sort of operatives that could be easily replaced, you know, like a gear in a machine. (laughs) And so I think teachers in our culture of teachers have felt very disempowered over time. You know, we just don't, our voices don't matter. You know, I think now we do have an opportunity to actually find our voice and express ourselves because with this huge teacher shortage and this growing teacher shortage, teachers are going to have more leverage. Teachers are going to have more power. Uh, because we need teachers. There's no way we're going to replace teachers with AI or anything else. The human content, we know enough about human development and learning that that human contact is so, so, so important. So I think our jobs are not at risk. What the problem is, is that our jobs need to completely change big time. And so if we can start thinking about how we want to see a change and build some capacity to express those needs and those changes in ways that people will hear us, I think we do have a chance to make changes. So for example, in my book, one of the examples I give is to apply systems thinking and design thinking to our schools. So one, one part of our school system that seems really stuck is the way we manage time. And there's this somehow this is belief that we have to break it into these particular segments. And so what that does is every time you get into some kind of deep learning process, the bell rings and you're, you know, everybody's, yeah, right. Uh, And then, but at the same time, we talk about deep learning is really important. Well, deep learning takes some time. 
So at the same time, in many places, principals have more autonomy than they used to have. And so if teachers got together and talked to their administrators and said, hey, can we experiment with some different time schedules? Can we do block scheduling? Could we spend all afternoon doing science some days? You know, (laughs) Could we rearrange the way we think about time in this space? Now, that's one structural component to our systems that it would together as a community, you could resolve. Obviously, it would take cooperation <laughs> and also um, people's willingness to think outside the box and stretch. And because the other piece of this is there's a kind of inertia built into this system, which is sort of part of human systems. So systems operate this way, and that's the way they've always operated, right? So why should we change it? We should just keep doing the things we've always done. That's the way it's done. So we have to be able to have a growth mindset and open up our thinking about what things could we do to make this work environment and this learning environment not only better for people who work in it, but for the learners and you know the students in the learning part of it too. And I think that's just one example of one piece of this structural issue that could be modified. Absolutely. And I I recognize too that inertia is something that pulls on school leaders, it pulls on the classroom teachers, and I think it also pulls on the students themselves that there's an expectation for what, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the game of school uh, should look like uh, and feel like and the parameters as you're talking about as well. Bell sounds has moved to something different uh, that uh, will take a growth mindset to, to work through. And so I'm loving this, Tish. What else uh, has your research and work and efforts gleaned with regards to the structural piece? Um, Uh, Or we can talk mindfulness as well, too. But Sure. Well, you know, it's pretty obvious that the way that we've been thinking about mindfulness in terms of as an individual, my ability to recognize my stress response and cope with that stress response and manage it so that I can be more present for my students. There, that, the, at that level, there is a lot that mindfulness can be helpful for, which I can talk about. But when we think about the structural issues, we have to use mindfulness differently because it's not just about calming down. <laughs> you know? it's, it's really about applying insight into this system, being able to see through these structures. So one way I like to think about it is we all have habits of mind and body that we learn from childhood. Uh, We learn the way things are supposed to be. We learn the way you respond to this situation or that situation, and they become automatic. And in a way, they're kind of automatic pilot part of ourselves. It just, they happen routinely. But often, and sometimes they're very effective, but often reality doesn't actually match what we hope it should. And when that happens, stress results. When reality is not doesn't conform with the way we think it's supposed to, then that creates stress. And so the ability to first recognize that that's what's happening rather than fight whatever it is that's coming up, because that's the first inclination. Since we have this fight, flight, or freeze response that when we feel threatened in any way, it gets our autonomic nervous system in high gear so that we can fight or flee from whatever is causing the problem. But when that system is engaged, it interferes with our higher order thinking. And it actually reinforces some habitual behaviors that may or may not be helpful. 
So for example, in the case of the teachers that are overreacting to their students, their students are interfering with whatever they're trying to do in their heads. The students don't have that in their heads. You know, they don't know what the teacher's agenda is. And when you're in that state of stress, not only are you not seeing the whole context, understanding the the student's perspective, the, the bigger picture, you're only looking at the clock and you're only thinking about the end of your lesson, right? You, you're focused on trying to sort, finish this thing. And that's when you're in the stress response, that's what happens. You get very narrowed. It does not help you solve problems well. You know, it might help you run away from a lion, but it doesn't help you solve complex problems. And so we have this stress response that sometimes gets in the way of our goals. And what I see mindfulness as is I sometimes call it a biohack because we're hacking our nervous system when we just go, wait a minute, there's no lion here. There's, you know, this student is not going to bite my head off. You know, I might miss finishing this lesson, but it's not the end of the world. It's not a physical threat, but my body is acting like it is. And my mind is acting like it is. So I think this is one place where mindfulness can be very, very helpful at the personal level, I can start to recognize through practice when my shoulders start creeping up, because that's always a signal for me that I'm starting to feel stress or my jaw is clenching. And at the same time, I also start to notice my thinking, which tends to be very narrow, like, oh, I'm never going to get through this, like those kinds of thoughts, right? Those are all signals of, whew, my stress level is going up. And when we become familiar with this and we recognize it, then we can stop and take a breath and calm ourselves down and you know allow ourselves to settle into the present moment and be responsive to the situation you know one way or the other it's not going to be perfect even if you know if i don't finish my lesson because now i've just snapped at my student and now they're frozen and or the other ones are getting defensive because i you know they're not learning right <laughs> so if i take a moment and calm down and maybe they won't learn anymore, but I won't have interfered with my relationship with them, which is really important. You know, I will have been able to say, hey, I realize I'm starting to stress out, you guys. I don't think we're going to finish this lesson, but I'd like to address your question. Maybe we can talk about this during recess, maybe whatever, instead of trying to fit into this structure that's causing the stress, right? To allow ourselves some breathing room, I guess, is one way to think about it, some space. And so at the at that level, at this level of the classroom interactions, it can be really helpful. And my research has actually shown that a program that I helped develop called CARE, which stands for Cultivating Awareness and Resilience in Education, that combines mindful awareness practices and emotion skills, does not only reduces psychological distress among teachers, but it reduces something called time urgency, this feeling like I'm never gonna finish what I have to do. It also improved emotion regulation, uh, which is really important in this kind of a context and mindfulness among the teachers that we were studying. And this was this study was conducted in the Bronx and upper Manhattan of New York City in some of the really you know very high impacted schools. But not only did we show improvements in teachers, but we observed the classrooms and we, rated the quality of the classroom interactions going on between the students, among the students and between the teachers and the students. 
And the, the schools that got the care program compared to the control group were much more emotionally supportive, the classrooms. The teachers were more sensitive to the needs of their students and the classroom was more emotionally positive. There was also more productive time for learning in those classrooms too. So we found this, but the, the thing that was really exciting is that the students improved. The students improved in engagement, motivation, and reading competence. And we didn't teach the teachers to teach differently at all. All we did was help them apply these skills to the stress they in, experience in the classroom. But when it comes to these structural issues, I can still see it when there's a structural problem, the insight that you can get from mindfulness might help you. So for example, if I'm sitting here with my watch and noticing my stress and noticing the student, I could say, huh, you know, I really need more time to teach this material. Maybe I should go talk to the principal. So it's not just about me managing the stress of not having enough time and not interfering with my relationship with my students, but also like, what is it about the system that is making this harder for me? And can I, is there a way to change this? Maybe it might take a while. I'm not saying it would happen overnight, but these are the places where we might be able to leverage some of our current power to make some of these changes to, to make our jobs easier and help our students learn better as well. I love that there you went from, yeah, kind of that broader systems level thinking and just narrowed it all the way down to the moment that a teacher internally makes the decision about how to react. And then we're able to bring that back out in terms of what that means for that particular interaction in the relationship between those two individuals when it's not a blow up and then what that does to culture and then what that does to learning and it spirals all the way back. <laughs> and so it's cool to uh, frame it that way to think about how important it is in those moments to have the types of like care practices like you're talking about and the role that that can play in helping out. And I really like what you shared there too. And then allowing thoughtful reflection about what you can learn from those moments when you tiptoed up to that line as being things that we can advocate for um, when we think about systemic change. I'm, I'm hearing you right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because they do give us that insight. Uh, we just have to think a little bit past our own individual moment there, you know, like, wow, I'm being asked to do something that just doesn't fit into this time frame. And they're being, they're telling me I should do this, but I really can't do a good job if you only give me 50 minutes to do this. If I was, you know, if I had the whole afternoon to do this, we could get into some really deep stuff. And, and, and the other thing about that too, is that we now know that students learn at different rates. Some students and some adults pick things up really quickly. And then other people have to ponder things and it takes them a while to get the gist of it. I'm one of those. I have to visualize it. I, you know, things don't just come to me. I have to like have a chance to imagine it in my head somehow. And that takes some time. Um, and it, school systems are not set up to allow difference in the time frame that we learn things. And that, that's the whole idea of this sort of standardization, that there is some standard child, right, that is going to develop according to this timeline exactly this way. And I've, I've run into students in my experience teaching that took a long time to learn something, but when they did learn it, it was deep learning. 
You know, whereas some of the kids that picked up things quickly, it's like they forgot them the next day. So I think allowing for more depth in our learning systems would be really helpful. The other thing too, is that our systems are still set up with the assumption that we're supposed to memorize some things or learn, wrote, learn things. We don't need to wrote, learn things anymore. We need to solve problems. You know, we need to solve real problems and and work together as a community to solve problems. So I think things like project-based learning is a really great way to go. I know that's not the easiest thing to do in the world, but when kids are doing project-based learning, they're more engaged. They are more able to apply certain concepts to real world situations um, that are meaningful, you know, and if they need to know a fact, they can Google it. So when we think about these systems changes, you know, we can think about time. We can also think about instructional differences, like something like project-based learning. We can also think about mixed age groups like having older kids and younger kids together so that they're teaching one another and supporting one another and learning by doing that. We can also think, like I said, more flexible time schedules. Um, I'm going to advocate, and I know I'm going out on a limb, let's get rid of tests. Testing is doesn't make any sense in today's context at all, zero. And there's no evidence that it's doing anything at all that's helpful. And what we need as educators is we need really good formative assessments so that we know where our students are so we know how to direct what we're doing. And our technology today is capable of giving us in real time formative assessments on our students' learning that would be much more helpful for us than these end of the year, once a year standardized tests that drive everybody crazy. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all about getting rid of those. <laughs> uh, Tish, I love it. Those are uh, things that I would also want to advocate for. And I, I do appreciate when students have the opportunity to show what they know in the ways that are in their wheelhouse. And I do appreciate PBL or, or if it's a community-based learning initiative or, you know, whatever acronym you need to go uh, off of with that. And I actually recently learned too a little bit about Tim Elmore, his acronym EPIC. Uh, and Tim Elmore does a lot with thinking about our Gen Z learners. And that EPIC acronym is that the today's learners need learning to be ex- experiential. Uh, to be participatory, to be image rich, and to be connected. And, you know, something like a PBL, for example, would do absolutely that. And I totally agree with him 100%. Yes. Right. I do as well. That's why I I love that little piece of learning. So shout out to Kristen Selecta, who uh, recently passed the information along to me. And and that's shaped my thinking a little bit uh, also. And it's as things move to those spaces and as those time frames become uh, maybe a little less rigid and our students become a little bit more accustomed to deeper learning experiences and to expect that uh, versus the game of school, uh, I really think that it is going to lead to a certain degree of workplace wellness uh, because of the culture, not only within the classroom, but across the entire system uh, that is going to have an impact on the topic that we uh, really are you know, getting an opportunity to address here with today's conversation. And so, I joke every week that 30 minutes goes by really fast. <laughs> and so we, <laughs> yeah, it does. we have kind of reached uh, our time frame here. But I do want to ask you, I guess, as we bring our conversation to a close, if you had like a, a parting message or maybe a note for us to close on. Sure. I think I, I want to share that despite all this, I feel very hopeful. I really do. 
you know, if you can imagine if the teachers, the parents, and the students got together and said, hey, this system needs to change, you know, it would have to change, you know, and it might happen in small, little small pieces here and there because our systems are so decentralized. But I see, you know, I see every community has one of these gems or a few of these gems where there are, people are experimenting with change, changing structures and modifying structures. And the more we're experimenting, the more we see success with this, the more I see we are headed there. So I really want our educators to stay on board and not quit. <laughs> and because we need you, we really need you. Our kids need you. Everybody needs you. But I also encourage you to raise your voice, feel more empowered. You have more power and be willing to take some risks and step out of the box a little bit um, with your colleagues and your leaders. Yeah, that's um a really powerful message, Tish. I really appreciate you joining us for today's conversation. Uh, I hope that this podcast episode reaches folks in a way that inspires them to do exactly you know, what that call to action would hope. And so thanks for all your advocacy in this space um, and being a part of our education community broadly uh, as a change agent towards a lot of things we got a chance to discuss. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I just um, hope everybody can stay on board and let's let's change this system. We can. 